0: welcome to New Books in Literary Studies. My name is Miranda Corcoran, and today I'm very excited to be speaking to Mark A. McCutcheon, author of The Medium is the Monster, Canadian Adaptations of Frankenstein and the Discourse of Technology, which was published this year from Athabasca University Press. So thank you so much for joining me, Mark.
1: Oh, thanks very much for having me on this program. It's a, it's a real delight and an honour.
0: So your book is a very interesting exploration of technology and adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I think what I'd like to do now is just dive into discussing the book itself. So you say in the introduction to the book that the book posits a twofold art, argument that Frankenstein essentially reinvented the word technology for modern English by constructing it in terms of manufactured monstrosity, and also that McLuhan's media theory and its reception constitute, especially in Canadian popular culture, a tradition in adaptations of Frankenstein that have globalized this sort of Frankensteinian Sense or conception of the word technology. So I was hoping that we could begin by discussing those two key points, and I'd love if you could expand a little bit on this idea. What exactly is the relationship between Marshall McLuhan's media theory, technology, and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein?
1: Well, thanks. That uh, th- that's the the sort of big question. Book tries to. Uh, connect the dots uh, among those very different topics. And at first, they might really not seem intuitively connected or related. And it's been a long uh, process getting this research to uh, establish those connections <laughs> and sort of figure this out. I mean, I, I uh, just to step back a little bit, uh, I, I'm coming to this work from having done some dissertation work first on um, adaptation studies. Traditionally, it's kind of a field where what's analyzed is the relationship between books and film adaptations of them, but it can accommodate a lot more in different kinds of work, uh, music performance and so on. And uh, another way in which I came to this work was through uh, dissertation work on uh, rave culture and techno music. And these uh, started to uh, coalesce, I suppose in looking at the way techno music, Detroit techno music in particular, was doing some interesting things in terms of dramatizing and representing a kind of Frankensteinian sense of technology. So uh, I had kind of outlined some of what is happening in the book here in a relatively early article. So in 2007, Uh, My article, Techno, Frankenstein, and Copyright, was about a particular thing that happened with Detroit Techno uh, just before Y2K, where a major label, um, Sony, had actually uh, pirated uh, an independent label's record, and the way the independent label responded, because they had no... Uh, real deep pockets for a legal challenge was just to mobilize their fan base to um, destroy the reputation of the major label's cover or, or rip off of the record, whatever you will. And in the process of establishing the context for that, um, I was interested to see that there were some of these longstanding connections between Frankenstein and, and technology. One of Mary Shelley's contemporaries, Thomas Carlyle, in the same period as Mary Shelley, so the early 19th century, was writing about automated literature, automated culture, even virtual reality. And that was some of the deep background that I was sort of discussing in talking about where we get even the word techno in terms of what it means in terms of music, what it means um, as a prefix and what its deep history is. And that sort of little section, kind of a initial context bit in in that article kind of stuck with me and and kind of a a blueprint for this bigger study that has taken about that long to come together. It seems from what else I've read, um, other studies of Frankenstein, like John Tunney's In Frankenstein's Footsteps, books about Frankenstein, can seem to take like a long time to come together. And I think part of the reason for that is that it's just a massive archive of not just work that's now been done about Frankenstein, not just different editions of Frankenstein but the huge archive of adaptations of Frankenstein in popular culture so i mean just uh, as an example um if uh well you if you've you've read Frankenstein right oh of course absolutely when did you first read it?
0: I think the first time I read it was as a teenager and then again as an undergraduate in university. And I think I've come back to it maybe once since then.
1: Yeah, that actually sounds pretty similar to my experience too. I first read it as a graphic novel adaptation in like the eighth grade. Um, and I think it was even for a French class. And then I read it, yeah, and then I read it as an undergraduate as well and revisited it as a grad student and have since taught it. And it's just sort of endlessly interesting and and productive uh, and ubiquitous. So that was the point of my question is just that um, it's pretty inescapable uh, literary touchstone. Even if people haven't read the story, there's a way in which people – kind of know the story or get the story due to the infinite number of uh, film adaptations and other kinds of references. And that's really where the kind of kernel of this book comes in is, is to identify the ways in which Frankenstein uh, has become such a popular cultural touchstone, but in the particular way I'm looking at it, it's taken shape uh, as a, particular influence and a very specific source for the way we talk about technology today. So one of the book's big arguments is that talking about technology today means talking about Frankenstein, or at least evoking the the specter of of Frankenstein. And uh, I've kind of followed a hunch about that, and it led to um, some pretty interesting historical research into what Mary Shelley's contemporaries, like I said, Carlisle, for instance, were saying about technology uh, in, in Mary Shelley's time and, and shortly after the publication and then the republication of Frankenstein, first in 1818 and then in her revised uh, edition in 1831. And I was uh, confirmed in my hunch and, and interested to see the abundance of evidence that sort of contrary to what standard definitions in dictionaries now tell us that technology's modern sense its modern meaning as machinery uh, industrial systems took shape in the late 19th century we actually see evidence of that meaning in circulation in the early 19th century and it, it seems in some ways very specifically by uh, very specifically influenced by mary shelley's frankenstein so then taking that and looking at the way that the Word has sort of transformed and changed since that time still further. One thing I did was kind of, uh, I, I, I ran a, a Google Engram search, which lets you search all the books that Google at least has, has archived and and digitized to look at the incidence of words and phrases and so forth. And uh, one thing I found in the process of doing that was that the, use of this modern meaning of the word technology is, you know, like I said, there's an abundance of evidence in the 19th century, but of course the Google historical book record is not so great. Once you get into the 20th century, their record gets a lot better. And the use of that term really popped, particularly after world war two, and then even more dramatically uh, in the mid to late sixties. So I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? And I'm, I'm trying to recall sort of how this sort of came together Initially, um, in connection with uh, Marshall McLuhan's work, it all kind of came into focus uh, while I was on a a teaching job in Germany, actually, and and I was asked to sort of uh, do a keynote at a conference of the Association for Study of New English Literatures, a European organization that's devoted mainly to North American and uh, and other Commonwealth and post-colonial literatures. And I tried then I was already working on a number of things about Frankenstein and I tried to sort of put a Canadian lens on it and I think that's where sort of McLuhan stepped into the picture I started rereading some of his his key texts I started rereading the medium is the massage Um, I reread uh, what I think is maybe my favorite McLuhan text to teach because it's one of the actual clearest statements he ever gave about many of his ideas, uh, however improbably, was in the interview he gave to Playboy in 1969. So the uh, big texts like that, the big popular texts that might be those for which McLuhan was sort of most widely read or best known... Harbor some really interesting language about media and technology. And those terms for McLuhan become kind of interchangeable in his work. They occur with about the same frequency throughout his work. So that he's talking about media and he's talking about technology and often he tends to mean the same thing by them. Uh, He's meaning by them not so much systems of communication and representation, but the further you read into it, he clarifies that what he means by media and technologies are new environments that reshape consciousness, that reshape um, subjects and, and how we imagine ourselves and how we conceive of and produce ourselves. And the language in which he represents and discusses technology and media really soon reveals a very specifically kind of Frankensteinian subtext so that he's talking about machines and Uh, robots in particular in the Playboy interview, and he talks about how humans need to make sure that we're the masters of robots. We we need to take control and make sure that they don't run amok. Uh, The title essay in his very first book, The Mechanical Bride, uh, The Folklore of Industrial Man, that came out in 1951, and right there too, the title essay in that book is about – mainly it's about the way people sort of feel alienated by – advanced industrial culture and, and mass media in the early post-war period. But in the process of sort of describing that context and and the the ways in which people feel um, modern, alienated, cut off, and so forth, he uses a lot of very gothic language, very specifically Frankensteinian language, references to vampires and ghouls and robots all together. So it's really quite um, a a thrilling sort of read in terms of just the images that he's using. And yet McLuhan has a kind of reputation for being kind of a new media champion an anti book hero of what in the time of his heyday, the new medium was television. Right. So he was seen and widely understood in his day as kind of anti old technology and and very pro new technology And that seems to have been a result of the way he very carefully cultivated a kind of a public persona of sort of detached, critical distance, uh, impassive and impartial analysis. He said, well, it's very important that we understand these things that are happening. So how best to do that? Well, let's just try and keep a critical distance from them and um, see what we make of these new media environments that are so radically and so rapidly changing the world or the global village, as he called it. And yet the tone in which he published his works and made so many public statements really reveals an anxiety and a disquiet and a dissatisfaction. And this is why I really like the Playboy interview in particular is that that's where he sort of cornered by the interviewer comes out and says, well, if you really want to know what I think, I really don't like any of this technological change. I'd much rather stay with books and and linear print media. And it's a, a revealing statement, and it puts into context some of the ways in which he's constantly representing media and technologies as science fictional and very specifically Frankensteinian threats. Now, at the same time, he really didn't have much time for or interest in Frankenstein as such. He only makes a couple of very passing references to it throughout his work and seemed to read it very much as what Frankenstein at the time was read as, which was sort of pulp, sort of throwaway horror pulp or or science fiction without really any literary capital. So the whole rehabilitation of Frankenstein is what we now think of as a kind of literary touchstone of the English uh, canon wasn't really the the main approach to Frankenstein in his time. So he's rather dismissive of the text itself, although he's clearly internalized and taken up so much of the language of Frankenstein adaptation, the, the sense in which that story has been told and retold over and over again as a tale of uh, machines run amok. That really is the tone in which he represents media and technology so consistently uh, that it's really it, it it becomes something that you sort of start to see everywhere in his writing. So this is a kind of a long way around to explain how all these different dots connect. Yeah, but looking then at more recent. Canadian adaptations of Frankenstein in which I was already interested what stood out for me was that some of the some of the key adaptations of Frankenstein in Canadian popular culture also are adaptations of McLuhan's ideas and McLuhan's theories and that was kind of the aha moment where i thought what is this pattern i'm recognizing in which these very popular Canadian Frankenstein stories are including references to McLuhan along the way. And that's how the dots really came together once I established that in Canadian popular culture, at least since McLuhan's time, Frankenstein adaptations, whether in film, music, print, literature, or what have you, have also really tended to conspicuously. Uh, represent or or work through McLuhan's ideas as well. That seemed to be the pattern that kind of coalesced and said to me that, wow, there's really something unusual happening here. So just to give probably a couple of the best known examples of the ways in which Frankenstein as a story, uh, even in a very reductive or pardon the pun kind of skeletal uh, way Comes to be adapted in popular culture and Canadian popular culture in particular, and the way that those adaptations then come together with McLuhan. So the two standout examples really are from the early 1980s. And the the first would be William Gibson's novel Neuromancer from 1984, one of the founding texts of the subgenre of science fiction that became known as cyberpunk and a film from about the same time, David Cronenberg's Videodrome, which in retrospect looks and feels very much like a kind of cyberpunk film in a way. Uh, Cronenberg was a specialist in fairly grotesque horror movies. This one gave that aesthetic a very specifically science fictional and even more specifically Frankensteinian twist. So both of those texts Are Frankensteinian stories. Neuromancer is basically a kind of a a heist caper, a high tech heist caper, in which the main object uh, to be um, stolen by the main characters is an artificial intelligence. And sort of once it is freed from its technological confines, it, it transforms itself and threatens to transform the world in the process. So that's the kind of basic Frankensteinian plot in Neuromancer. Despite everything else that's going on in that novel, it's definitely a story of machines running amok. Similarly in Videodrome, it's a story of a new television technology that has consequences that go far beyond the control or predictions of those who came up with it and becomes uh, monstrous uh, and and leads to catastrophic results. Comparing that to then, it's not even subtext. There's a fair bit of pretty uh, blatant McLuhan references in both of these stories. In Neuromancer, Gibson is working very closely with some of McLuhan's key ideas about the global village, about um, the ways in which Print literacy hasn't prepared us for the visually immersive environment of television and, after that, computers. And in Videodrome, that McLuhan set of references is really quite obvious. There's a character who's pretty much an open parody of Marshall McLuhan. The character Brian Oblivion in the film Videodrome is a fun watch in and of his own Itself. This is a character who is a, a media pundit who says sort of cryptic uh, and vaguely alarming things about the globally transformative power of media, and he's a character who never shows up as an actor sort of walking onto the set that's being shot in the film. He's always already on a TV set, so he takes part in a TV interview. There's the interviewer on the, on the soundstage in, 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 the, you know, in the blocking and mise-en-scene of the film. And then the other actors uh, are also on the stage. And then somebody else sort of wheels on a a TV set so that Dr. Oblivion can take part in the interview as well. But he's sort of sitting as a TV set between the other people who are sort of physically in the room. And he never actually sort of shows up in movie except on a TV screen. So uh, that's just one of several ways in which uh, this character is uh, a pretty – um, a pretty funny uh, in a way sort of homage to Marshall McLuhan and uh, in some ways a very edgy one as well so I think those two texts to kind of wrap up this super long roundabout <laughs> answer to your question is that um, th- these two texts Neuromancer and Videodrome really establish this pattern what in the book I call McLuhan-esque frankenfemes of technology these are popular stories, they work with Frankensteinian plots, they refer to McLuhan quite extensively, and in the process they construct a lot of representations of technology that give it a very Frankensteinian sense of machinery or systems or what have you that have the capacity, uh, if not the actuality, to to run amok and have catastrophic effects far beyond what has been imagined uh, for them. So after those texts, there's a whole kind of multimedia tradition in Canadian pop culture since then, in which further adaptations of Frankenstein also work in McLuhan references. And we we find those in print science fiction. We find those in music. We find those in theater and, and all kinds of other places. So it's been a long time uh, crystallizing the, the, the focus here. But it's become a really interesting project that's uh, taken a lot of unexpected twists and turns to come about.
0: So you note that Frankenstein itself as a novel is very much a founding intertext for technology, both in its original incarnation and in subsequent adaptations – Uh, which often sort of boil it down to a cautionary tale about the dangers of scientific hubris. And you mentioned in particular two stage adaptations, Presumption from 1823 and The Man and the Monster from 1826. And these very much reduce the story to a sort of simplistic, conservative moral about the dangers of dabbling in scientific knowledge how do you feel about this process of simplification? Is it a bad thing, or are there some benefits to be gained from this sort of distillation of the novel into a simplistic moral message?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I'm as interested in making a, an ethical... The, whether these adaptations that simplify the story are sort of good or bad. What I've found is that they're enormously productive. Like They lead to a lot of different... Outcomes and and new pop culture products. It, I think part of it is because, sort of, right at the very early ascent of industrial modernity, the in the middle of the industrial revolution, the the Luddites are smashing machines all over England while Mary Shelley is composing Frankenstein. So this book that's published really at The outset of industrial modernity is already at that time thinking the limit of industrial modernity. Well, what happens when you pursue a kind of the logical terminus of scientific progress, of technological research and development? And the terminus, of course, for Shelley is how can science uh, overcome the inescapable fact of human death? and the story that she then tells about that is is such a a tragedy of scientific hubris of progress that um under patriarchy under capitalism goes so disastrously awry i mean among other things frankenstein is a story uh, about uh, Um, a man who really wants to reinvent a a wheel that maybe didn't need reinventing human reproduction. So what's interesting about the way this story gets simplified and propagated across all these different domains of popular culture has to do with my, my sources here are Christopher Baldick wrote a very, influential for me book in 1987 called, uh, in Frankenstein's, uh, shadow. And it's all about text resonates throughout 19th century writing and culture, both in Britain and in the USA. And uh, another source is there was a sort of a source book, a miscellany on Frankenstein, its context and its adaptations that was written by Timothy Morton, uh, around 2001 or 2002. And in that he identifies the ways in which Frankenstein has become uh, popular partly as a prefix so he notes things like frankenfoods as something people started to talk about and he calls these very small units of reference or illusion he calls them frankenfemes so i've sort of taken that term and seen how it's propagated particularly in canadian pop culture and Looking at the ways in which those very early adaptations in the 19th century took Frankenstein and turned it into a simpler, kind of almost religious cautionary tale. Uh, this we see even in the 1931 film starring Boris Karloff that maybe more than anything else has kind of imprinted the public consciousness with an, an image of, of Frankenstein and a sense of what that story is. And, you know, it starts with this strange little prelude in which the producer or director walks out on stage and says, this is a story of uh, a man who, you know, failed to reckon on God, who who is presumptuous in his hubristic effort to um, overcome the fact of human death. So these stories, in the early 19th century, and then in films, uh, take a much more complicated and ambiguous and ambivalent story of of that um, challenge, and yeah, they turn it a kind of much more simplistic religious parable almost. And I found as in, as much as anything, what was interesting about the reason uh, for the simplicity of those adaptations weirdly had a lot to do with the way the book was produced and distributed. So um, in a very uh, extensive study of the production and distribution of literature in the romantic period, uh, William St. Clair's book, the reading nation in the romantic period has a whole chapter about Frankenstein. And what he shows is that one of the main reasons that Frankenstein was simplified in stage adaptations was that the first run of the book was actually quite small and it didn't have much of an audience beyond the, the tiny elite who could afford at that time in 1818 and the 1820s who could afford to actually buy books. So the early stage adaptations really Were the first versions of Frankenstein to popularize the story. So they, from the outset, were distributing, were disseminating a sense of the story that the producers of the play is working from Shelley's text had already sort of simplified into these stories that they knew would bring people out to the theater in much greater numbers uh, for their sensational special effects for uh, their sort of clear and un- unambiguous sort of morals, uh, if you will. And I think also that part of the reason the stories were simplified for the stage in the way they were probably had something to do with the, um, the state monitoring and sometimes even censorship of theater in the period. So to put on stage a story that had a kind of moral ambiguity to it in in the same way that the original novel does could have been really problematic for actors and everybody involved. So these early stage versions were what really popularized the story. And it wasn't actually until the end of the 19th century, as St. Clair shows, that the novel itself, once it came out of copyright, then started to get a much wider audience, a much wider readership. There were some much more affordable editions that came out towards the end of the 19th century, and then through much of the 20th century, amidst all of its film adaptations and so forth, the, the book became uh, even more affordable and more widely printed. But it also remained very much, as I said earlier, kind of a science fiction pulp text, and it wasn't really until the 1970s that feminist criticism in particular started to take a, a closer, more critical look at the book and say, you know what, there's actually a lot more going on in here than this book has been given credit for. So there's a really interesting kind of whole other story there about the the vicissitudes of adaptation, the vicissitudes of literary production and distribution and, and law that have a lot to do with how Frankenstein has taken this very uh, circuitous path towards becoming such a a popular cultural touchstone. And what's also been interesting... Oh, sorry, go ahead. All I was going to say is that I I was struck in researching those early stage adaptations, like Presumption, like The Man and the Monster. There were some very... Routine things they all were doing just because they knew it would, it would bring out big audiences. So these, these productions, there were so many of them. There were dozens through the early and and mid 19th century. And they all focused on certain scenes, right? So they focused on the creation of the monster scene. They focused on the destruction of the monster scene. And these were, sometimes even explicitly advertised just for these great scenes. Here's the times you need to show up at the theater. And one of the things um, that a lot of these productions did was cast, oh, first they would cast actors of fairly large stature. And the monster was typically represented uh, with blue body paint. So then when I was looking at more recent uh adaptations one of which is um the hollywood film avatar and we can sort of quibble if you want about how or why that counts as a canadian (laughs) production uh but one thing they do there of course is that the the alien species that figures so prominently in that film is sort of gigantic and blue and i thought oh this is wonderful you know among all the other ways in which avatar is a frankenstein story uh it's also adapting this really long-standing tradition of of depicting uh, the monster uh, as as of gigantic stature and of with blue skin, so I thought that was a really interesting um maybe not coming of a full circle, but uh, an interesting late touch to that to that long tradition. But back to your next question,
0: so I was going to ask, and you have touched on this already, this idea of the reclamation of Frankenstein as a text because I think as modern readers, we tend to view it as a canonical work of literature, but As you mentioned in the book, the novel was actually out of print for much of the 19th century. And it was mostly, as you said there, known through its various stage and later film adaptations. So it wasn't really rescued from that sort of pulp marginalization until the 1970s and the 1980s, when, as you noted, feminist and Marxist critics began to reevaluate it. And I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about the marginalization and the recovery of Frankenstein. Do you think that it's related in some way to changing attitudes about technology.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think certainly in the immediate post-war period and we see this in McLuhan's writing that he's applying this sort of technological re- uh, interpretation of Frankenstein, as as Baldick calls it, this kind of skeleton story of machines run amok. He's making references like that a lot to nuclear technology in particular, and certainly the association of nuclear power and more specifically nuclear weaponry with Frankenstein has become, you know, so uh, embedded. In our culture, and continues uh, as we've unfortunately seen in all too recent times, continues to be a, a huge uh, issue. So, I think there are certainly some reasons of context and history that are spurring the reevaluation of Frankenstein in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. Uh, there are some, I think, more localized reasons for it as well. Certainly, there was in the 1970s the very important feminist project of reassessing the literary canon as largely a patriarchal structure. So, work by um, Gilbert and Gubar and The Madwoman Woman in the Attic, work by uh, Spivak on uh, women's texts and imperialism, these are some of the Earlier criticisms of Frankenstein that give it some serious critical attention and theoretical attention to to show sort of what's going on in that novel um, really means it should be given uh, should be accorded more recognition should have more literary capital and and then the novel starts to accrue that, that partly. In the process of um, not just rewarding and repaying, but first drawing this this renewed critical attention uh, of of critics of of scholars informed by emerging trends in literary analysis and and literary theory, and as yeah as you said, chiefly uh, feminism, but also Marxism, also psychoanalytic approaches, and after those, some of the more sort of continental theory approaches of uh, post-structuralism and post-modernism.
0: So I was really struck by your reference to post-colonial adaptations of Frankenstein. Obviously here you're speaking primarily within the Canadian context, but do you think that Frankenstein has a particular resonance within post-colonial cultures?
1: Well, my particular approach to post-colonial studies is to take that premise to take that theoretical apparatus and actually turn it on mainstream popular culture. So typically postcolonial studies have arisen in response to and in the um, the, the real urgent uh, and still urgent analysis of minoritized literatures, literatures and cultural production of marginalized groups, of the colonized. So to take th- that theoretical apparatus and turn it on sort of mainstream popular culture in Canada, that would mean talking about not, say, uh, indigenous or immigrant cultural formations or, or literary productions, but rather the literary and cultural productions of the sort of settler-invader mainstream, you know, the, the sort of um, – the what uh, – might call, I guess, you know, there's certainly a kind of a whiteness to it. Certainly in the examples I've given between McLuhan uh, and Cronenberg and Gibson, there, there's a whiteness and a, and a maleness to Canadian still that when you sort of turn the post-colonial lens on it, you see these these sort of weird things start to happen with uh, representations of not just major um catchphrases and and buzzwords, such as what technology has become, but also the way that they're, uh, producing stories, you know, a text like Videodrome on the one hand, as I said, is, is the product of, uh, a Canadian pop culture producer who does fit some of those sort of traditional pop culture demographics. He's a white guy. Uh, and at the same time, the story is itself kind of about media imperialism. There's a lot of stuff going on in the movie Videodrome. That's about Canada's amb- ambivalent kind of experience, both as uh, maybe not a superpower, but you know, or in the, in the G8 or whatever it's called. And at the same time, as a kind of recipient of U.S. media imperialism. So Canada has long understood its national configuration uh, as as being on the kind of the receiving end or being the target of a lot of exported U.S. culture. So this idea of media imperialism, which, you know, if I'm re- retrieving... McLuhan's ideas, which are arguably kind of unfashionable, and if I'm trying to sort of revisit these through a postcolonial lens, I've also retrieved some of the other older and arguably less fashionable ideas of people like uh, Oliver Boyd Barrett, who came up with the media imperialism thesis uh, in the 70s, um, and other people like uh, oh, who was I thinking of? Sorry, it's totally slipped. <laughs> My mind right now. Oh, Maurice Charlon, who came up with this notion of technological nationalism, the ways in which Canada as a nation is kind of held together by its communication and transport technologies, partly due to the vast geographical size of the place, and partly because of its newness, its, its uh, intrinsic kind of modernity as a nation state. Just uh, observed the 100th, 150th uh, anniversary of the founding of Canada last year. Observed, critiqued, celebrated. There are lots of different kinds of responses to it. So, turning that kind of postcolonial analysis on pop culture has has been interesting in sort of retrieving those older uh, ideas uh, about what what Canada is as a nation state, both as kind of a An energy power and and an economic power but also as uh, I don't want to say colonized I don't think that would be accurate but in terms of of culture the media imperialism thesis um, suggested that the US in particular as well as other major exporters of intellectual property like Britain were colonizing Canadian culture with their own products and I think that notion still holds in in a time in which the Canadian cultural policy toolkit remains a, a very important instrument for Canadians to be able to produce uh, and tell and distribute uh, our own stories. So I'm I'm not sure that entirely <laughs> answered your question. If there's a point you'd like to bring that back to, or or did I?
0: No, it it. It absolutely does. No, you answer that very comprehensively. And the next thing I wanted to ask you about was a line that you use, a quote that you use from McLuhan that really stood out to me as being very striking and very pertinent to your overall conversation. You note that at one point, McLuhan says that with the arrival of electric technology, man extended or set outside himself a live model of the central nervous system itself, a development that suggests a desperate and suicidal autoamputation. And I was just wondering what you think the significance of McLuhan's rendering of technology in such decidedly corporeal terms might be, particularly with regard to someone like Cronenberg, who is so well known for his body horror.
1: Yeah, exactly. McLuhan's language is really grotesque, and I think it speaks symptomatically and critically to some of those colonial and postcolonial contexts I was, I was just discussing. And yeah, certainly thematically, McLuhan's statements about new environments requiring desperate measures, uh, even radically grotesque measures, is exactly the kind of thing that that Cronenberg picks up on, uh, not just in Videodrome, but really throughout throughout his oeuvre. Um, and there are ways in which a lot of other Canadian performers and and producers of of culture since have d- done that kind of thing as well. So both uh, both William Gibson. For Neuromancer and David Cronenberg for Videodrome became, for instance, really popular with emerging dance music sounds. These these texts got sampled and resampled and circulated throughout uh, not just sort of mainstream film and TV pop culture and 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 print, but also in kind of underground dance. And that's where some of these uh, connections between McLuhan and, uh, and, and Gibson, to become dramatized in some really interesting ways. So uh, I'm thinking of dance, dance music DJs like the rave DJ, The Paladin Project, who would sort of put on kind of... RoboCop-style body armor before <laughs> showing up at, at a rave to, to perform a set of fairly uh, fairly harsh and inaccessible dance music. I mean, if it's the kind of thing you like, you really like it. But if you don't, you're not going to show up for that. Uh, and that sort of tradition has continued too. But very very much playing with the, these ideas of the grotesque, these uh, Frankensteinian ideas of, of technology as monstrous and as autonomous which is certainly one of the more pronounced directions we've seen the rhetoric of technology taking just in the last year or two, all the, all the news and buzz and controversy about um, social media, for instance, has really dramatically assumed some of that Frankensteinian language with headlines like, you know, it it did um, Facebook's Frankenstein moment or, That was in the New York Times, or there was a more recent article about Twitter as having accidentally created a monster. So that really grotesque language in which McLuhan framed his ideas about media and technology became hugely popular in his own time. And it really, I think, resonated since. You think of McLuhan certainly on the cusp of digital culture which was starting to happen even in his in his own time i mean technically there was an internet or at least its predecessor in the late 1960s um and so i mean he was primarily preoccupied with with tv that for him was the new medium that was that was changing everything and and for the worse but computers were enough of a thing that he was getting some ways wildly, some ways presciently about the potential of computers to to reconfigure society and culture. And um, I'm sorry, I, again, I'm wondering if that's answered your question or if there's another direction in which you'd, you'd care to take it.
0: No, you absolutely have. And I think you're touching on sort of the prescience of some of McLuhan's ideas. In relation to Neuromancer in particular, McLuhan's ideas were a major influence on Gibson's concept of cyberspace. But what exactly is the relationship between McLuhan's theories and the cyberpunk subgenre?
1: I'm sorry, could you clarify the question?
0: So I was kind of curious as to what exactly sort of cyberpunk as a subgenre borrows from McLuhan or what aspects of McLuhan's ideas might be reflected in that subgenre of science fiction writing?
1: Well certainly we see it in, in in Neuromancer as one of the founding texts for cyberpunk and in itself is so influential in developing and inspiring this whole new subgenre of science fiction literature. So you know cyberpunk was theorized early on by people like Bruce Sterling as kind of a collision of corporate power and street culture or, or underground culture. And that's really what puts the cyber together with the punk systems of communication and control being on the cyber side. And then punk of course, referring to uh, punk music um, underground cultures, informal economy, that sort of thing. And, so the texts that have sort of followed in, in Canada, particularly in the wake of that, I think it's been interesting to watch the transformation, first of Gibson's own writing over the decades, it's the way he's sort of influenced other writers, particularly Canadian writers, in envisioning and, and occupying the, the cyberpunk mode or, or milieu. So some of the other works that he's done more recently have, have, you know, his work started out being set in a ambiguously far post-nuclear future and his career has taken a trajectory of setting his novels in increasing proximity to the present, as it were. I think his latest novel, which I haven't read, uh, departs from that again. However, other authors have certainly, taken notes from the kind of cyberpunk milieu of ubiquitous computing, um, ubiquitous digital connectivity, bodily augmentation, cyborg-like bodily augmentation and so forth, and given us lots of different takes on contemporary culture. I mean, science fiction, which so often is set in the future is it's kind of a critical truism isn't it that science fiction is actually about today in one way or another and that was I think probably as true in Mary Shelley's time as as it remains in ours and so some of the I think interesting cyberpunk or sort of post-cyberpunk literature that's emerged has I'm thinking of work by for instance uh, Nalo Hopkinson who set a novel, her, her novel from 1998, *Brown Girl in the Ring*, is set in a kind of a post-apocalyptic Toronto where the uh, inner city has been sort of gutted and is is largely left to uh, the poor and 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 criminals. Um, and there's a major plot there involving organ harvesting, right? And I'm thinking also of work by. Uh, Peter Watts, who's a science fiction writer who biologist by training. And so he grounds a lot of his uh, science fiction in really specific current science. And that's really no different from what Mary Shelley was doing in her own time. Uh, It's actually a little different from what Gibson was doing, taking, again, I think, thinking back on interviews that uh, Gibson has given about what his, concept of, of cyberspace was he, he has said, and again, echoing McLuhan that really, at least in Neuromancer had more to do with television than, than with computers. Although like McLuhan Gibson himself has become celebrated almost as a, uh, a prophet of, of the internet. So what um, a more recent writer like Peter Watts has done is sort of taken a lot of the setting and a lot of the tone of, of of cyberpunk and regrounded it far less speculatively, if anything in, in real world science and still pushed his extrapolations of it through to some fairly dramatic and and dystopian conclusions. So his first trilogy of novels, the, the Rifter's trilogy um, each of those novels has a pretty identifiably Frankensteinian plot set in, again, a kind of a near future, uh, I was going to say Canada, but it's actually not even Canada. He's doing the kind of William Gibson thing that and the thing that cyberpunk did too, which was to really downplay the role of the nation state relative to the powers of cities and more particularly the powers of corporations. So I think that would be another thing that mm-hmm. Gibson was very influential in, in doing was establishing a, a kind of a critical uh, edge to cyberpunk in developing a kind of an analysis of the power of the nation state under economic globalization. So there's a memorable line in Peter Watts, I think it's his second or third novel in the Rifter's trilogy where he says, the national borders had become so meaningless that nobody had even bothered to take down the, the checkpoint stations, the, the border crossing stations. And Watts also does some interesting and specific stuff that riffs on William Gibson and riffs on McLuhan in the second novel of the Rifter's trilogy, Maelstrom, he gives that name, the the Maelstrom to what he sort of envisions the internet to have become by the mid 21st century. So projecting, and extrapolating to about really no farther now than about thirty or forty years away, he's envisioning a, an internet that is just sort of alive with self-aware, self-replicating, viral uh, software programs and 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 artificial life forms, and he envisions it very much as a as a very ruthless uh, dog-eat-dog. Uh, world of of information exchange sabotage uh, and surveillance and the, there's a great passage in the novel Maelstrom where he sort of explains the reason for why people are calling it Maelstrom, saying that they used to they used to call it cyberspace, but that seemed almost a, a kind of a, a glistening vista of sort of <laughs> clean lines and flat colors where he's describing the internet uh, in, in in that period. Um, in his words, as a, quote, meat grinder. So he takes a very almost nihilistic approach to working through some of the themes and some of the preoccupations of cyberpunk and of McLuhan's media theory and, and giving us some uh, more current fiction that uh, that is... Very challenging, uh, ethically and, and aesthetically.
0: So I'd like maybe, if possible, to just jump ahead a tiny bit to talk about the Alberta tar sands industry. And I was asking if you could maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about what that is and about how cultural representations of that industry often draw on a sort of Frankensteinian technological discourse.
1: Yes, I meant to bring that up when I was actually talking about the kind of tension in the post-colonial analysis of Canadian popular culture, but this has been one of the sites of study that has really sort of brought that into focus. As much as we might talk about Canada being uh, the colonized in terms of media imperialism, in terms of being on the receiving end of the cultural exports um, or dumping practices, if you will, of the USA and the UK, certainly when we look at – the industry of uh, the tar sands in Alberta, we are looking at one of the ways in which Canada has asserted its its economic power in the world. The, the tar sands, really just a few hours north of where I am right now, are one of the world's largest scale industrial projects. Certainly, Um, they're a a linchpin of the Canadian economy Uh, the extent to which they're a linchpin has sort of been disputed depending on I I think which province is making the case and yet at the same time um, so problematic in so many different ways in terms of uh, pollution of course primarily uh, but yielding all kinds of different political problems as well I think partly the scale of the operation it's it's Unimaginably vast up there, and certainly the clear sense among not just environmentalists but some some scientists certainly as well who have been sounding the alarms about what 's happening there environmentally really lent this particular uh, subject this particular topic to Comparisons to Frankenstein, uh, references to Frankenstein, in Canadian popular culture, in activism, in journalism, uh, in corporate advocacy, sometimes the, that use of the Frankenstein analogy is is really just uh, a distancing effect. So to to say that no, what's happening in in the oil sands is is not the creation of some kind of Frankensteinian monster. But it was really interesting to localize the work. And and again, this is, I think, one of the rewards of sort of taking time. Like I said, this thing, this whole project took about 10 years to come together. So it was one of the kind of later rewards to really just sort of hit on this whole scene, as it were, uh, in, in relatively recent years since... I think uh, about 2012 or 2013. So by that time I already had a good bit of the in- initial manuscript together. And then I hit on this whole other area. I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is a real exploitable resource, <laughs> pardon the pun for, for looking at, at Frankenstein in Canadian pop culture. And one of the, one of the most interesting productions, although it's not one of the most directly, or might not seem the most directly related is, uh, a very interesting stage production of Frankenstein that was mounted by uh, Alberta's Catalyst Theatre Company, and it debuted actually in Fort McMurray, which is the town that is basically the launch point and uh, industry base for uh, for the Alberta oil sands um, enterprise. So this stage version of Frankenstein launched there, and it opens. It's it, it's a fairly um, Quite, I don't like you to use the language of sort of it's 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 true to the original or or, or strays from the original, but it's, uh, it it quite liberally adapts the original. There's a lot of song, there's a lot of musical numbers in Catalyst Theatre's production, and it opens with a whole kind of poetic sequence, almost like a chorus sequence, of some of the main characters talking and singing about the strange days that are upon us a very kind of apocalyptic feel to that sort of opening uh, chorus number and in the context of a, a play that's sort of debuting in in Fort McMurray and then touring to other places like Edmonton and Toronto it's you know really hard to uh, read that that play without thinking of of the context of the oil business and and the tar sands industry, and certainly that's been something that was a context that was acknowledged by the people who uh, put on the play and produced the play, and so that was sort of one one of the more interesting uh, examples that I, I found of Frankenstein adaptations that speak to or or in some ways represent. Um, the Canadian tar sands operation. And there's there, there turned out to be like a whole bunch of these. And some of them even harken back beyond the current tar sands operation to earlier oil operations and even the first energy crisis. So there's sort of novels and songs and poetry in in the 1970s um, that are sort of Canadian uh, representations of, of oil in kind of Frankensteinian terms. Uh, one one maybe better known example would be Neil Young's song from 1974, um, "Vampire Blues," where he's he's singing about being a vampire. Like the song is sung from the perspective or the persona of, of a vampire, uh, as as somebody who is extracting quote blood from the earth, sell you twenty barrels worth kind of thing. So. Um, And then more recently, certainly with the emergence of of the tar sands operation, I mean, Alberta has been drilling for oil for much longer than the tar sands have been around. And so I think that was what's informing some of those earlier examples, but the later ones uh, deal – more specifically with with the tar sands so like I said there's the, the Catalyst Theatre play there's some uh, interesting uh, country and western music from uh, Corb Lund an Alberta singer-songwriter that, that represents oil uh, in some ways as quote power to the people as he puts it in one song but also as a, a kind of a social and economic linchpin that when pulled would mean the kind of end of everything. So there's, there's a real um, wealth of cultural work going on that's related to uh, the oil sands that has really emphasized that kind of Frankensteinian context. And maybe as I mentioned earlier, no, uh, example better does this than the Hollywood film Avatar, and the reason I I thought I could include it in a discussion of Canadian pop culture is that James Cameron uh, by birth is a is a Canadian, uh, and you know obviously he's made his career as a director in in Hollywood, but he's also got this whole uh, oeuvre of films that are. If you look at the plots of them, they're all kind of Frankenstein plots. You know, the Titanic is an eminently Frankensteinian plot, right? It's such a a classic story of technological hubris. Um, Maybe more in keeping with my own sort of aesthetic interest, the Terminator films, right? Where the the machines uh, come back from the future to haunt and destroy the present. Um, And so Avatar belongs to that kind of line and uh, watching some uh, I was watching about the tar sands and they were talking to some of the people who were involved in the production of Avatar and the art director is actually somebody from Alberta and said that they specifically designed some of the sets to look like the Alberta oil sands I thought, well isn't that fascinating so of course I took another look at the film and certainly you you look at a film like uh, Avatar through that lens and it becomes quite uh, blatant, really, that the uh, the Pandora mining operation is kind of allegory for, I mean, any large scale sort of open pit mining or or resource extraction operation, but really looks quite specifically a lot like what images we have of the Tar Sands operation, and then. Reviewing too how that film got mobilized by activists, including the director himself, but also by indigenous groups, as a way to make the tar sands, um, you know, a, a public issue to to bring public attention to the environmental damage that uh, that industry was causing. That was that was a really um, a very exciting part of of doing this project and of Having had something of the luxury of giving the the project time to sort of uh, achieve a certain vintage in its in its own way that I kind of came across this whole other archive and was able to uh, think that through in 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 terms of Frankenstein and in terms of um, mcLuhan's media theory too that element plays maybe less pronouncedly into the the tar sand stuff except to the extent that the way the word technology itself and the way the discourse of technology is invoked, is used to discuss the Tar Sands is, is very much in the way that, that McLuhan popularized. He very much popularized this sense of technology as, as a word we can use to candidly uh, in, evoke the, the, the looming shadow of Frankenstein. And then to read, too, in the process of doing that research, that, of course, you know, the melting of the polar ice caps that has been accelerated by the global warming that has been caused by uh, our oil based economy is actually, among other things, ironically opening up new o- opportunities for oil. Just seemed like such a, a bizarre uh, and ironic Frankensteinian touch, taking that story of uh, technological hubris. To the pole, almost a direct echo of the Frankenstein novel itself, was was an extraordinary kind of finding.
0: So, uh, towards the end of the book, you talk a little bit about the patriarchal and often paternalistic discourse that surrounds technology and, well, STEM in general, and you comment that this is ironic because much of the epistemic foundation of technological discourse was, in fact, set down by a bookish teenage girl in the 19th century. And I was just wondering how the influence of Frankenstein and its many adaptations might shape our cultural understanding of the relationship between gender and technology.
1: Yeah, that's... uh... Dimension that certainly was brought up a number of times when I was presenting preliminary findings on this work to to audiences. So the the irony was pointed out fairly early on that you know, gosh, isn't it interesting? Technology is in so many ways, in so many domains of technology and media, it's very much kind of a, a boys' club or an old boys' club, and yet our whole uh, mode of understanding of this discourse comes from uh, a book. Uh, written by this uh, precocious and, and very prodigiously talented uh, teenage girl in the early 19th century, you know, and yet in many ways, a a woman too. I mean, Mary Shelley was writing this um, amidst marriage uh, after also having uh, attempted um, to, to give birth, I think a number of times she might've had one child, I think uh, who survived, you know, but, but um, uh, others who did not. Um, And yeah, so the the relationship of patriarchy and questions of gender to the whole discourse of technology is, I think, something on which a lot more work could be done. And you know, in some very influential forms, has already been done. I'm thinking, in particular, probably after after McLuhan himself. I haven't seen an authority as influential in in studies of gender and technology as Donna Haraway and her uh, very important essay on uh, feminism and and cyborg technology. And again, that was an essay that was written pretty early on in the age of globalization. I think it dates originally back to, I'm thinking, the early 1980s, and yet has become such a touchstone for contemporary science and technology studies, cultural studies, all these different domains of study in which uh Haraway now is um, is invoked uh, almost as often, if not more so, as McLuhan.
0: So um, I feel like at this point, I've probably taken up a lot of your time. And this has been a really interesting discussion. But I did want to ask in closing what is possibly something of a lighter question. But I'd like to know, what's your personal favorite Frankenstein adaptation?
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, I... Well, yeah, at this point, it's kind of hard to narrow down. Um, I think I would identify – I've talked about some that are certainly prominent, but I think I would identify a couple of musical examples of favorites. So I'd, I'd mentioned the the DJ, the, the Paladin Project, uh, the stage name of, of a guy – Named uh, Len Giroli, and for years he would play raves in in Toronto and across Canada, uh, in this kind of heavily costumed persona as as a kind of a cyborg or stormtrooper, or in some cases an, an alien. And uh, those were always very enjoyable uh, sets to to dance to at raves. Another example, more specifically. And it might not seem like an obvious one, but I, I do spend a bit of time in the book explaining why, is what I think is maybe one of the best Canadian songs ever ever written. One of the best rap songs ever written, which is Maestro Fresh Wes' Let Your Backbone Slide. There's a whole system of references in the lyrics of that song that culminates in a line in the extended mix of the song where he raps, It's getting out of hand, I've created a monster. That bring those other references about shaping clay and stuff into into focus as uh, as Frankensteinian references, as references to even uh, Pygmalion myth, uh, as references to the the myth uh, of uh, the Golem from ancient Jewish legend. There's a real rich and, and resonant vein of imagery running through that song that. I mean I'd known the song for for decades seen him perform it uh, heard it played at uh at music festivals and and it wasn't until looking at it with this lens and looking anew at the lyrics that I really come to appreciate just how uh, how resonant and how intertextually rich the the lyrics of of that uh song are and so, yeah, the, the, the extended mix or, or power mix of Maestro Fresh West's song is maybe not as well known, and it certainly I don't think is uh, widely played as the shorter radio mix, but it's definitely one to find and listen to. Because it brings into focus some of the stuff that's happening throughout the lyrics that really make it a, an unlikely but super interesting Frankenstein adaptation.
0: Absolutely. And it really just shows how far the reach of the text is, even, you know, intertextually, as you say, the fact that Frankenstein has manifested not just in theatre, not just in film, but it's even infiltrated popular music. So it's a real indication of the power of the text and the power of the ideas and the iconography of the text. So, as I was saying, I feel like we've probably taken up a lot of your time, but... Just before we finish, is there anything you're working on at the moment, or anything you'd like to say about your your current work, any current projects, or anything?
1: Uh, well, you know, much fun as it's been to study Frankenstein so exhaustively, and as much as I feel there's really a lot more that could be done, I'm, I'm also kind of happy at this point just to put that on pause for the moment. Although the interest there is kind of spawned to different lines of inquiry, I've I've done some more recent work looking at. The relationship between media and the production and reproduction of of subjectivity, looking at the way people represent themselves or even um, project avatars or iterations of themselves through different media, chiefly digital media. So that's been one sort of newer line of inquiry and sort of developing from, yeah, as you said, the The really pervasive intertextuality of Frankenstein, I've become more interested in the relationship between intertextual practices in literary production and technology and law. So critical copyright studies has become a more important interest for me uh, in in recent years. And it's a kind of ongoing controversy in Canada, the, the state of copyright law, certainly since about 2012 when the the copyright law changed to tip the balance back or represent the interests of users and educators, not just uh, publishers and and authors, that um, it's become a real flashpoint for public discussion in Canada as an ongoing review by the government right now of the current Canadian copyright law. But thinking about how that regulatory regime relates to, Practices of quotation and intertextual use in uh, in literary works and in cultural works that either use a lot of other third-party texts to inform <clears throat> what they're doing, or that are made entirely out of the pieces of other works. And so you see here how uh, there is kind of an abiding interest in Frankenstein that's informing this. Some of the more radically intertextual works I'm I'm now looking at are, for instance. Um, poems like Centos, which are poems that are composed entirely of lines from other poems. So in a way they're kind of like Frankenstein poems because they're just bits and pieces of other poems that have been stitched together in new and interesting ways, right? Hopefully not horrific ways, but you know. And uh, related to that then is is an interest in not just the way these are put together and how they're then regulated by law, but also how they're sort of uh, distributed. And so I become... I think partly by dint too of of sort of where I work as Athabasca is an open university, I've become much more interested in uh, open access as a, as a distribution means as a, as a way to um, to share and and distribute new knowledge, new information, new cultural works. So I was pretty actually happy to land this book with uh, the university press because they publish, their stuff in print at the same time as they put it for free on the web. And that's still pretty unusual in scholarly publishing.
0: I noticed that actually, and I think that sort of open access model is something that really fosters a very engaged scholarly community, and it really fosters learning and interaction between academics. So I was really pleased to see the text online on the Athabasca University website, and it also means, of course, that our listeners can easily check it out as well, which you know is fantastic that it is there for them to read and to uh, you know, to, to gain ideas from. So that sort of exchange within the open access format is something that is really important and really, you know, very much the way of the future in terms of academia, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And I think it actually also is being embraced uh, in other is uh, Peter Watts, whom I mentioned earlier, he posts all his novels, uh, online for free as well. Corey Doctorow, another uh, Canadian expatriate uh, working in science fiction, he, he's a, a big advocate of open access. And w- something he said about that approach has really stuck with me, argues that it's it's not about losing sales, it's about gaining an audience. And I think too, I think too, for scholars, there's, there's a way in which it's really just recognizing uh, the public that backs and supports what we do in in other structural ways. It's kind of a giving back.
0: I think actually that might be a good place to finish up out. Uh- The Medium is the Monster, Canadian Adaptations of Frankenstein and the Discourse of Technology by Mark A. McCutcheon is available uh, through Athabasca University Press, and it's available to purchase as an actual physical book, but it is also available on the press website. So if you are interested in exploring some of the ideas we've been discussing further, if any of our listeners are interested in reading the book and perhaps learning a little bit more about that fascinating intersection between adaptations of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Marshall McLuhan's technology theory, the ideas are there. The book is there on the website for them to read. So in closing, I just wanted to thank you, Mark, for such a fascinating conversation and for the many interesting ideas and insights that you shared with us.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me on this program. It's been a real treat.
0: You're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure.